what feels like a totally different existence, I jumped on a plane late last year and headed to visit my folks in Florida for the Thanksgiving holiday. With a fidgety two-year-old in tow, along with all the gear he needs, I knew this wasn't going to be anything close to resembling a vacation. Little did I know this would be as close as I would come to a vacation for, well, the foreseeable future. After a few days with the family, I snuck away for a few hours in Tampa and St. Pete, visiting breweries and interviewing people for what was meant to be a very different kind of podcast. While that plan is temporarily on hold as we work hard to cover the COVID-19 pandemic, I thought it was time to finally unearth some of those interviews. In listening back on them, there's a carefree nature to the conversations. They're light, fun, and often teeming with laughter and jokes. At the end of my day, I traveled over the sun-soaked I-275 bridge from Tampa to St. Pete. I parked the car and glanced over at the tilted Tropicana field that looms over the area just west of downtown. And I looked over at one of my favorite places to visit when I'm in Florida, the Green Bench Brewing Company. I first visited Green Bench shortly after they opened in 2014, and have made it back just about every year since then. The brewery produces a wide range of styles, ranging from totally classic to creatively innovative, and the space is just inviting. The star of the show is a multi-use beer garden that welcomes the community to get together, converse, watch a movie, and just enjoy each other's company. Indeed, it's a very different existence than today. On arriving at Green Bench, head brewer and co-owner Chris Johnson jumped behind the bar to start what would be a several-minute-long process of pouring Green Bench's excellent take on the slow pour pills. As is custom, we had another beer while waiting for the pills to finish its work. Chris is a big presence, big smile, dripping with passion, and a thirst for knowledge. Having a hungry mind is one of the best compliments that I can give a person, and Chris has an incredible hunger for knowledge about beer, business, and culture. He's an engaging guy with plenty of stories and an unmitigated love of beer. He and his co-owners also share a common passion for the city of St. Petersburg, which has quickly become one of the country's fastest-growing beer cities. Green Bench is a complicated place, down to the brewery's name itself, and Chris is a multi-layered individual. Our conversation covers a lot of ground, and I'm only able to fit about half of it into this episode. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did that slow pour pills. So we're sitting in a reasonably new space for, for Green Bench. Tell me about where, you know, just the facility that we're in. Sure. Yeah. This is the Web City Cellar. Uh, we opened this about six months ago. So, and I guess at the recording, this is, uh, what is it? Almost Thanksgiving, right? So um, we opened in March of 2019. Uh, spent about three years planning this space, but essentially it's uh, kind of a second tasting room, um, retail space. Uh, dedicated to explaining, selling, serving uh, mixed culture, farmhouse, sour, wild beers, sours, um, I said that already, ciders is what I meant to say, and uh, meads, um, which the space in addition to retail space um, has a sort of second floor that we're on right now, has a bar up here as well. We can use as overflow seating, do cool events that we host or rent it out. And then it's also a production space for those. So big barrel house, we've got about, um, right now I think there's like three through 400 wine barrels currently. Um, fooder, tanks, stuff like that for sour beers and for cider and mead. And where does the Web City name come from? 
Uh, well, in the, it's a St. Petersburg reference, um, as is you know Green Bench as a whole. Um, we, do, we do our best to kind of pay homage to the history of St. Petersburg, which gives us an opportunity not just to um, uh, you know talk about you know what St. Pete was, but I think also it gives us a perspective on what St. Pete can be, and sort of looking forward at like how far, not only how far we've come, but where we can go. And so, in this sense, Web City is actually a reference to there was a guy in that in 1925 opened a drugstore, um, called it uh, Web City Drugstore. And it was a, a small like pharmacy. Um, he sold you know pharmaceuticals there. But if you increase, if you go, you, you move forward um, about 25 years, he turned that small drugstore into a 77 department store. He owned seven city blocks. And, um, but he kept the name Web City Drugstore, but he sold all sorts of stuff. You know, there was a beauty salon, food halls, uh, toy stores, candy stores, stuff like that. But um, so he, he, he kept the name Web City Drugstore, but coined the phrase the world's most unusual drugstore. So we say the same thing here. It's Web City Seller, world's most unusual seller. Um, so yeah, St. Petersburg references. So what, do you, what makes this particular spot unusual? Um, so that is actually a very interesting question. Um, truthfully, I don't. I, I I think it's unusual in that there is a seller in Florida. Maybe at this moment, um, who knows? In the future, hopefully, that's not as unusual as it is now. Um, nobody has done this in the state before. Um, obviously, there are some barrel houses around the world. Um, not too many, even in the southeast of the country. But um, you know, we didn't make this up by any means. Um, it is unusual to put one in St. Pete, Florida. I guess. Uh, for us, though, it, honestly, it was that that tagline's more of just a nod to uh, the history more than it is anything that we feel truthfully that we're doing super unique on the global scale. Um, but it is, I'd say, pretty unique for Florida. And how would you describe this? Obviously, we're doing podcasts. You know, how do you describe this facility? We're surrounded by barrels. Mm-hmm. You know, we're up upstairs tasting room. It's just adjacent to the main brewery. Yeah, I mean, I always try to describe it as like, hey, we have the Web City Cellar. It's, you know, extension tasting room of our um, current facility. So it's on the same property. It's on the other side of the beer gardens. They're attached. You know, the beer garden is is in between them. You can start a tab in one facility and close it in the other. Actually, our POS systems are joined. So um, it's really an extension of what we do more than it is, uh, in my opinion, something um, wholly new. But I would say that um, you're going to experience that the the feeling is to is to um, experience beer really in a way that that most people have only potentially ever been able to experience wine right so it's more it's it's applying sort of a wine bar wine sort of experience to a beer drinking consumer while they're at the same time they are drinking beer you know um and a lot of these beers i'd say sometimes often have more similarities probably to wine than they do to beer themselves as far as flavor profiles um obviously at the heart of what they are is malt, water, hops, and yeast. But um, we're definitely looking sometimes for elegance, nuance, and character that, you know, whether it be actual tannin um, from fruit um, or, and or sometimes barrel, but uh, acidity, um, all those things. So so take, let's step back a little bit. Talk sure. to me a little bit how you got into beer, what your, you know, sort of what your background is, and then just sort of what, you know, what drew you to it. What was the passion for it? Uh, yeah, so I, I got into beer while I was in college. Um, I started homebrewing. My, my dad actually was a homebrewer in the 90s when I was kind of growing up. When I was like in middle school and elementary school, he was um, he was homebrewing at home here. And I didn't know what he was doing, really. I never had his beer before. By the time I was really even in high school, he wasn't brewing anymore. He moved on to another hobby. But um, I remember him enjoying it. I was in college looking for something to do. I was kind of bored. 
and uh, was like, oh, my dad did that. He seemed to have fun. Let me try it out. So I went and uh, bought some homebrewing equipment. Um, although right before I bought it, I realized pretty quickly I knew nothing about beer. It's like when I was 21. So I spent a year like drinking a lot, um, like learning styles. Like every weekend I would pick a style and I would go to Total Wine, which are like local you know, wine shop that has tons of beer as well. And I would pick like one style of beer and I'd have like the BJCP guidelines open on my phone, which is a free app. And so I'd pick like, hey, this week I'm going to do Northern English Brown Ales. And I'd get six Northern English Brown Ales and a mixed six pack. And that weekend I would drink it while I was reading the guidelines, which gave me a really good like sort of base knowledge level by the end of that year on what made styles what they are. Right. So I'm like by the time I started brewing, I had a pretty good understanding of of what each of these styles were supposed to be and how they became what they are. So, uh, yeah, so I, I bought some equipment, brewed my first beer. The first all grain batch that I ever did that I, I built my equipment, wrote the recipe myself. I ended up winning like a statewide medal for it and then won a bunch of medals in the Florida circuit for like the next like three months in a row. Like it was like, it was like right at medal se- the, the circuit season. So I just started winning a bunch of medals and uh, I was like, oh, cool. They give you like awards for this. And so um, I ended up like volunteering at Cigar City and then they offered me a job and then yeah, I worked there about a year or so. They fired me, and then <laughs> I ended up getting a job at the homebrew shop that I was working at, or that I bought stuff from, and they hired me to open a brewery for them. So I opened that brewery, ran that for like two years, and I was like, once I opened that brewery, did the licensing, got the TTB you know, approval, the permit approval, got state approval, started running that brewery. I was like, oh, I could, I think I could do this, and you know, I'd like to not have like a, a boss necessarily. Um, and so yeah, so I started you know, looking for partners to kind of open a brewery with and eventually met Nathan and Steven, who are my partners, and the three of us opened in 13. Um, but I'd say what ultimately got what, uh, the reason I like beer a lot, like obviously it's easy to get into beer, beer's cool. You don't have to really prove that to anybody. Everyone's, everyone thinks it's cool. You tell them you're a brewer. I think what, what keeps me excited is that um, I will, it's like a constant pursuit of knowledge that I'll never finish right like i'm gonna die without knowing everything about beer which is actually kind of kind of rad like i get to wake up every day be like i have no idea like that's my answer a lot of times so uh i'm just constantly learning and that's pretty fun so how there's a lot to unpack in that in in, yeah. in that so uh, let's take some parts of it start at the end here how important is it to have a hungry mind as a brewer how important is it to to drive yourself to to sort of learn every day as opposed to say you know you know, I've, I've learned what I need to learn or I've got enough knowledge and then we can just make the beers as we make them. Right. You know, how, you know why, is, why is the education, why is the learning important? I mean, I guess I think it depends on what your purpose is, right? Like, I mean, I, I definitely wouldn't sit around and say that, like, I have anything figured out necessarily or that I have the right answer to becoming a brewer. Um, I would just say that, like, that's what drives me personally is the fact that, like, I will, I'm going to, I have this, like, crazy thirst for knowledge. And I think I've always had that. I don't think it's necessarily related entirely to beer. It's like when I get into something, no matter what it is, I dive in. And until I feel like there's not either too much more for me to learn or there's not the challenges start waning a little bit, that's when I, that's when I get a little disinterested. And I think that beer for me was chosen because I realized pretty quickly that like I'm never going to be an expert in this. Like I'm just it's not going to happen. 
I might know more than the majority of people in the world, but shit, I don't know nearly enough for my liking. You know what I mean? So that's what it was. Yeah, because I think it's a little bit unusual for a 21-year-old to be like, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to blast through a bunch of like, you know, six-pack of Northern Brown Ales this weekend. That doesn't seem like a particular, like, that is a particular approach to a subject that I think probably, you know, gives itself pretty well towards to a life in beer. You know, trying to get that thirst to get knowledge, to, you know, to push yourself just beyond... You know, beyond those, just the standard information. I'm sitting around trying to make postcard pills better every time I make it. Trying to make Sunshine City better every time I make it. You know what I mean? So, like, yeah, I have this pursuit to make a brand, but I am, I guess I'm not necessarily, I was going to say more interested. I'm not necessarily more interested in that, but I guess I'm equally as interested in making a consistent brand as I am in making that brand better. So there's not one over the other for me. I think they're the same goal. I think that if you're trying to make a consistent beer, you can make a consistent beer that tastes like shit. What does it matter that it's consistent, right? But if you make a delicious beer consistently, that's important. That's really tight. And if you can make that beer better, and then consistently can make that beer better, well, that's where it's like that's where I'm like, ooh, that's the sweet spot. That's what I want to try to do forever. Some folks, when they talk about knowledge or they talk about beer learning, they're talking about, well, I, I need to find the most obscure style and learn about that or, or get out there for the rarity circuit. Here, you're talking also, and I know you have that part of your passion too, but you also talk about a lot about classic styles and you know, your interest in, in brewing those classic styles. I've read a bunch of stuff for you where you just talk about the Cascade Hop. You know, that's <laughs> not really something a lot of people do. Like, what is the passion for sort of the older, the, yeah. you know, the older traditions and the stuff that you know, is not cool for, for most, most people nowadays? Well, I think that, well, first of all, if they're, they're, I think they're really cool, first of all. I think they're all very, very cool. I think that... Uh, I'm a big fan of history, if, if anything, just by itself, again, aside from beer. And I think that I draw a lot of, I try to draw somewhat like, I feel like what I'm drawing when I'm learning history is, is a little bit of wisdom, right? It's like someone has gone through this, someone has learned something, they've, they've done this maybe their entire lives. And I'm learning how to make a great pilsner has made me a better ipa brewer has made me a better mixed culture brewer has made and it has made me i think a better and i think this goes hand in hand it's made me i think a better drinker right like if i was just in it for the rare shit if i was just in it to make you know even some of the stuff we make right like aging a barley wine in a barrel for several years which we've done and we've had a lot of success doing that but i don't think that if that was my pursuit it's it's going to help me it's going to help me as much as like it like i guess this let's put it this way if i made a ton of barley wine it wouldn't help me make a pilsner better but i'd say what if i make a ton of pilsner i think it's going to help me make a barley wine better and i think those are sort of the cross transitions there where i'm like i can if i'm and i, and I appreciate drinkability i appreciate i think becoming a better drinker conscious drinker very very conscious thinking about the sips that i take thinking about how to like um, how to make it sometimes, how to make it more drinkable, how to make it less interesting. All of those things are elements that like, if I spent two and a half years making the brand called Bench Life, which is an American style light lager, I've learned so much making that beer that I have then been able to apply to like a hazy IPA. Like if you drink our hazy IPAs, you drink our triple dry hop, this and that. And I've had this been said to me before, like there's, there's, there's like an element of drinkability that I'm looking for across the board. 
I think that the best beers in the world that have that characteristic as a drinker generally are classic styles. There's a reason they're classic styles. And to me, that element is drinkability. The last point on that I would make is that the other thing that really fascinates me about classic styles, and I think styles in general as a broader look, but specifically on, on, on classic ones, beer is a fantastic, and God, this is what I'm so interested in these days, beer is a fantastic, um, it's, it's a great thing to explore if I'm trying to understand what the hell was going on at that time. Right, like there's a reason English mild was English. There's a reason like um, in the UK they were making porters, but they weren't making them in Germany. Like there are just there, there's and there's like cultural reasons, and there's like and not even necessarily just like personal culture, but like agriculture and like weather and just timing and, and economy and like. Uh, laws like all of these things have created the styles that we consider classic now and I guess by studying those getting in sort of the mindset of a person who was like I mean what do I know compared to a dude who was like sixth generation brewmaster in Germany in 1833 I don't know shit compared to him I think you know what I mean and so like that's what I'm trying to learn so where, what sources of information are you are you going to for sort of this? Because beer history is one of those dangerous topics for, sure. for writers because, you know, we find out very quickly how, how little we know because we don't go to original source material. You know, there, was, there are myths upon myths upon myths that beer writers for the last 25 or 30 years have, you know, all the way back to Michael Jackson, mm-hmm. have sort of put forward. So what, where, you sort of, where do you delve to get that sort of information about the historic? Oh man, that's a really good question. I think I think that to be honest with you, a lot of my a lot of my learning sometimes outside of beer too, right? Like, so if I'm if I'm trying to learn about if I'm like, oh, this beer, you know, here's this style. It was Grodzitski. I have a hundred percent smoked malt or smoked wheat Grodzitski on tap next door, right? Three percent Polish beer. But if I want to know a lot about that beer, sometimes I'm not, I can't find too much information. So the next thing I look at is just what the hell was going on at that time, right? Like, what are people reading? What are people interested in? What was like the news of the time? What is like, what does the culture feel like? Like, what are people into? What are they doing on a daily basis? What kind of shit was available, right? And a lot of times, especially if we talk like farmhouse brewing, we don't know anything about farmhouse brewing, to be completely honest with you. Like, we, we, we think we do. I have a I think that I have a good idea of what farmhouse is, but the truth is, is like, you know, we've been making a grisette for years and a lot of people, we, we've, we've been very successful with that beer, especially among other brewers, right? That have been inspired by sort of that beer. And I have this conversation all the time, well, what was in a grisette? It's like, I don't actually know what was in a grisette. There's really no true documentation of that, but I will say what was going on at the time? What was being grown at these breweries near them? Like, in my head, there's no way they were buying it. They were importing shit, right? So what was around them at the time? Give me a 50-mile radius max. And even that's, like, pretty huge, especially in a small country like Belgium or France even. So I think that most of what I try to, how I try to learn about ancient styles, if there is no actual true root material about that beer, it's just about the culture itself. And then I try to go backwards from there. Farmhouse is one of those things. Farmhouse, Cezanne are subjects that I feel like every time I learn something more about it, 
I know actually I walk away from that knowing less. I feel like <laughs> yeah. I, it, it, it's just the understanding of how much you don't know. Yep. For you, what is, you know, how do you define farmhouse? What it, or can it be defined? What is the character? What is the essence? What is it, I mean, more than anything, I guess just to you, what does that mean? Uh, man, that's a, it's a lot easier to answer to questions like what is it to you? Because the truth is, yeah, I don't, there's no universal thing, right? right. Um, it's, ironically, we, we have a rubric here I was showing you on our menu that we print out daily where we define terms. And actually, I, I have a little stipulation above the rubric, which is like, this is these definitions are not industry-wide, like, concrete definitions. These are, like, how we describe it. So if I say this word, this is what I mean. Don't walk out of here thinking I'm saying that's everybody. Um, so for me, a farmhouse ale, um, I, I, think there's, I think there's a couple of elements. I think one of them, g- generally speaking, farmhouse ales are going to be fairly dry, right, and, and drinkable, just like flavor contributions, right? I think that um, most of them, if they're in package, were probably going to be light struck because back in the day, nobody had brown bottles, right? And so I do think that's an element of the characteristics. I think that while we use a lot of pellet hops in a lot of them, most of them are going to be whole leaf hops. Most of them are probably going to be aged hops. They didn't really have refrigeration. They're going to be kind of stinky and gross and all that stuff too. I think that probably the most important element of farmhouse ale is that Every single producer, which oftentimes we're not commercial brewers, most of the time we're not, if we go back far enough, right? Um, they had a house character. They had some kind of characteristic of yeast and, and or bacterial profile that was somewhat unique to them and unique generation to generation to generation. And for example, when we opened our doors in 2013, we were the first brewery in the southeast of the country to ever own a fooder. I think we were one of like seven breweries in this country that had one. And we had one right when we opened. Everyone thought I was out of my fucking mind. And so, like, um, but what I was trying to do was create a house culture because I felt like that was the most important element of farmhouse ale was, like, create a flavor profile that is, like, green bench. Um, And so, yeah, I'd say, like, that to me is probably the characteristic that I'd describe. And how deliberate have you been in trying to create that that character, that house character? Did you have an idea of what it was you were looking for? Did you, was it more just, you know, over time you began to have an idea of what you wanted that character to be? Um, I think I've always been pretty deliberate, but I will say this. My vision has evolved. So while what, what you know, while I was just as deliberate in 2013 as, as I am in 2019, I think I'm just a different person than I was in 2013 now you know so i just have a different vision i've experienced a little bit more i think i understand i understand what i want now and i understand what i wanted then back then i had the benefit of understanding what i wanted then and so i think that uh and i think part of that has to do with the consumer i think the consumer has evolved too right 2013 is a while ago and so especially in this this industry i mean it's night and day it's it's constantly changing and i think that um there may be some things, there's definitely some things actually that I think I've tried now and would try now that maybe I was a little, I, I was a little more cautious in. As much as I think that I'm someone that, that you know, throws a lot of caution to the wind, even back then, I think that I just know more. What, how important is, is point of view? How important is voice, in, you know, the brewer's voice in terms of and just in terms of your brewing philosophy, like how do you want the consumer to understand sort of where you're coming from and what you're trying to do? Yeah. How important is that? I think it's very, very important. I think that for me at least, right? Again, it depends on what your goal is as a brewer. Um, 
I for sure, I want my voice heard when I put this out there because I think that context is almost everything sometimes. Um, you could sit a beer in front of someone and they could hate it. But if you have a conversation for it, they might like it. Does that necessarily mean that the beer was bad or good? Not necessarily. It just means that like with context, it's easier for someone to enjoy a thing. Um, now, I want the beer to be drinkable no matter what, because obviously I'm not going to sit down with everybody that has this beer and be able to talk to them. And sometimes you like to use branding for that. You try to put your story on your can or your artwork or your bottle or whatever it is, right? So you're trying to get information about this thing out there, because I'm sure that's going to help someone enjoy this thing more if, than if they just had it and they begin to just create their own preconceived ideas of what I was trying to do, right? So that's when I think actual context is huge. I think that my, I think that you, the voice of the brewer is important, but I think that the only way that that's going to be successful, and frankly, the only way I want to, I want a brewer to actually follow through with that. And I do want everyone to do that, but the, I would not want anyone to do it if they didn't take it extremely seriously. Um, I, I think that as long as we're honest, we're good. I don't like false information. I don't like, I'm not trying to lie to anybody. I mean, I dump a lot of beer so that I don't have to lie to people. You know, like it's not a, you know, I just, that's it. I just want honesty. My goal personally is to make the best beer that I possibly can. I think that the, the way that I accomplish that goal is if I care about the beer that I'm producing more than anyone else on the planet. So I have to be more passionate about this thing than anyone in the world in order for me to put as much effort as it takes into, into this thing for me to make the best fucking beer I possibly can. And I guess that was really the philosophy, right? We are going to make drinkable, balanced beers with intent. We're going to make, and more importantly, I guess, well, nothing's really more important than that, but I guess in addition to that, we will make sure that they are what we are extremely excited about because that's how we're going to accomplish that. They're going to be drinkable and delicious because I'm super stoked on it. If I'm not super stoked on it, then whatever, right? I'm not going to probably put as much effort into it. Um, and so I have to be really excited about it. And so I think when Green Bench is like, oh yeah, you guys like explore this, like to explore this. It's like, yeah, we do like to explore these things. I'm, I'm, I'm making all these double, triple decocted lockers because I'm fucking excited about them right now. And I'm learning so much from them, right? And so, like, that's really the goal. And I think that that's what me, Nate, and Steve, that's what we shared. It was actually less about, let's make this thing that no one can pronounce. It was more about, I want to fucking make a crusade because it is, the, in concept, the best drinking thing I can think of at the moment. And I'm really excited about learning about it. And if I make anything else, I'm probably not going to make it as good as I'm going to make this because I'm excited about this. Yeah, let's do that then. Because we want to make the best beer. The goal is to make the best beer. With light lager, what was your driving force there? Why would you? Why would you think? You, why were you thinking? This is a brand I want to. I want to get behind. This is a beer style I want to tackle. Because I like drinking them. I've I've always liked light lager too. I mean, even you know when I was twenty one, drinking all these other beers and really getting a hazy, in, hazy, hazy when I think of that, uh, double IPAs and you know and 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 big imperial stouts and you know. Um, making fun of friends that were drinking and I was drinking too. I wasn't really making fun of people. I wasn't that guy. I was also like, cool, we got a middle light, throw it here. Like, I didn't care. Like, I like those beers. I always have. Um, and then I think it's, you know, we're, we're allowed to like them again now. Back in the day, you weren't allowed to. 
Um, now you go to a beer fest and like brewers are drinking PBR and Miller, Miller High Life and you know which I of course you know Banquet I, I can like all those beers I always have and I think that now I, I drink I've drank a lot of Miller High Life you know like a lot of, of like corn lager and honestly that was probably the beer I mean the name shows it uh, Bench Life you know it is it is a nod to Miller High Life which I think has um, in my opinion, some of the best drinkability in light lager I've ever had. Uh, I really, really, really like that beer. And so that was really my backwards deconstruction of the Miller High Life. You know, it's a, you know, 25% corn lager, um, a lot of six row and some two row. And it's, I think it took me two years to get the drinkability and consistently consistent drinkability that we currently have, which has been so much fun. I mean, we're locked in 16 ounce cans next next year. I'm super excited about that to get in some venues. We do six pack, 12 ounce year round of that that brand, and yeah, I I don't hate on those. What sort of how important is Green Bench's interaction with the community at large and St. Pete? Um, just whether it's doing outreach, charity, just community organization, you know, does that play a role in, in Green Bench's identity? Is that something it's looking to do more moving forward? Yes and yes. Um, it's very, very important to us. Um, Nate and Steve were born here. Um, I think Steve's like third generation. Nate's, I think, second generation. I was born in Memphis, Tennessee, but I've been here since I was 10. Um, so we all grew up here in St. Pete. I think part of our vision has always been to be St. Petersburg's brewery, to be the brewery that would represent the city um, and the city kind of get behind that. And we have been very, pretty, pretty uh, like involved, probably more than any other local brewery, a lot of local community-based things um, and charities. I mean, just two weeks ago, um, a group of us, we, we actually started this collaboration series and starting this charity tap that we just started where, um, you know, a dollar from every pour of that beer is going to a local charity. And I'm talking like hyper local. I'm like, I'm trying to like do stuff for like our neighbors, not just like, this, not even like Tampa Bay, not even, not Florida. I'm talking just like Pinellas County. Um, so we have one going on right now, uh, Culture Chronicles Volume 1. It's a hazy IPA. Um, lemon drop and citra where we're donating money off for those we actually have a can release not this Saturday but the Saturday afterwards with that one um, and um, all of the money from that is going to go to building beds which is a, comp- a, a local 5013c that um, uh, builds beds for kids there's an estimated 7,000 kids in Pinellas County in our small county uh, that don't have beds to sleep on every night um, and so not only do we donate money to that but two weeks ago a group of us went and volunteered there on a Saturday. So we rolled in and, and it kind of hit me real strong. It was my first time volunteering there. But like when I say I wanted it hyper local, it blew my mind. The last house I went to where I built three beds for kids, five blocks from my house. I mean, like it was in my neighborhood. I was like, oh shit. Like I was looking for something local and this shit is local. Yeah. Right. Um, I think that's important. I think that the name Green Bench comes like really, I take that to heart pretty heavily because. You know, I, I try to talk about this as much as possible, but you know, Green Bench is an old St. Pete reference in the early 1900s. We had over 3,000 Green Benches in downtown St. Pete. But you got to think, we, we were marketing ourselves as the city of the Green Benches. African Americans were not allowed to sit on that thing. Um, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a black man myself. My, I'm biracial. My mom's black, my father's white. I identify as a black man. I grew up in Memphis in this, this black culture and this black family. And um, 
you know, the name GreenVenture is important to me because it's a black man owns GreenVenture. You know, it's like a full circle transition where now this is, and, and these are conversations that I'm, I'm having with local uh, city leaders all the time. Um, friends that are in, you know, uh, our community that we, we've been boycotted because of the name before. Like some people have had issues with that name, which I, I actually respect. And I, I like the fact that they're aware of that because those are the conversations we're trying to have. You know, I've written articles about it. We've talked about it. I'm involved with like the Holocaust Museum actually here in uh, St. Pete has um, beaches, benches, and boycotts, which I think is a fantastic exhibit to have. Um, the reason it's called Green Bench and the reason it's called Web City, because Web City was during the same time. And while Doc Webb hired African-Americans, one of the only place actually in the city that did, he also didn't allow African-Americans to eat at the lunch counters. So when the NAACP decided to host sit-ins, they chose the benches and they chose Web City, right? The place where everyone was, the place that this city built itself off to say like, this is who we are. Well, yeah, let's, let's be honest about who we are, right? We're not allowing all of our citizens to, to participate in all these things, but it wasn't just the green benches and it wasn't just Web. It was water fountains, it was bathrooms, it was the Vinoy, it was the waterfronts, it was the beaches, it was like parks. Segregation was real, right? And I mean, I grew up in Memphis. It was like pretty, obvious you know like we have martin luther king jr was assassinated in my city you know like the civil rights museum is that the lorraine motel is at the motel yeah i was there this year i went back to visit my granddad i rolled in for my flight and i went through it again. i've been in through it dozens of times and this is a way of sort of taking taking that name back yeah i actually hosted uh so my my grandfather's last name is dickerson and um I hosted our family reunion two years ago. It was so cool. I had 200 just black folks from all over the country kind of come in here, and I got to talk to them about the history and what that name meant to me, and we all got to take a picture in front of the benches, and it, it just was, and they all were, it was, it was great to see how proud they were of that, and it means a lot to me and to my family, and I think, you know, and to go back to beer, right? Like, using this thing as a catalyst to understand culture, to understand, like, why things are what they are. Like, I want to explore that. I want to explore why a Pilsner is a Pilsner. The same way I want to explore, why the fuck is a malt liquor in all of these, in the, these cities? Why was it marketed this way? Why, is, why does the beer my mom gets different than the beer my white friends are getting over here? You know what I mean? Like, I mean, all of that stuff's, it's crazy. Talk a little bit about the culture that you referenced. You know, there is a there is a partner. There's somebody else. I think you're working with. You know, in terms mm -hmm. of beer culture, talk about you know, what sort of role they've had and and the folks there and and, and their mission and, and what you're hoping to do moving forward. Yeah. Um, so Dominic, um, he's a local. He lives here. He's from the Bronx, but I've known him for years. Um, he kind of got in the beer world a few like right after we opened, um, or at least started working in the the beer local. Is here. He was. Driving the brew bus, worked the tap room at, at uh, Florida Avenue and, and brew bus brewing in Tampa. Got a job at Flying Boat Brewing Company here in St. Pete. He and I have talked a lot about the lack of people of color in the industry, like a lot. We've had a lot of conversation about it, a lot of frustrated conversations about it. And um, so he launched uh, a company, a brand company kind of called Beer Culture. He wrote a book. Um, this is not the beer you're used to, um, and it's him sort of not. It's him embracing his personal culture, like right his his from the Bronx, you know, uh, black culture 
that without, you know, and embracing beer at the same time. So it's saying that, like, if you're into beer, you don't have to give up this other thing, right? This is for everyone, and it should be. And uh, so, and Dom is super uh, involved with a bunch of charity work. He's been doing charity work since he was, like, 17 years old. Um, and so when actually I wanted to do this, I called him. I was like, hey, can we meet? I want to have a beer. I got someone I want to talk to you about. I said, he said, what's up? So we sat, um, we came here, had a few beers, and I was like, hey, this is what I want to do. I told him I want to do this charity tap thing. I want to, I don't know what charities are super hyper local. I'm coming to you to see if you can help me with this. If you'd be interested in being involved, awesome. If not, if you just want to point me in the right direction, like that's tight. And he goes, and he's like, you really want to do this? And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, I want to be involved. And I said, all right, perfect. That'd be great. And so uh, we decided that what we're going to start doing is the Culture Chronicles, and they'll just be volumes. Um, and every beer is going to be different. It's not always going to be an IPA. Fuck, we might come out with like a Adam beer next. Who knows? But uh, it's going to be a fun, you know, not just a way for us to uh, raise money, but it's also hopefully a, a vehicle in which we can use to introduce um, different cultures to craft beer as well. So it's sort of a multifaceted, in that sense, uh, sort of pro- project we're working on. So it's, it's going to be a lot of fun. So the event we're doing actually uh, two Saturdays from now, so not this Saturday, not the 30th, but the following the first week, Saturday of December, which I think is the 7th. Um, we'll have a DJ out here. We're actually setting up tables. We're going to be playing dominoes. Like we brought out some bringing bones, throwing bones down, uh, which is what we used to do in my hood. He used to do it in his too. We got, we got cardboard cutouts with like rules to shoot dice. So we're going to show people how to shoot dice. And of course, we'll be a bunch of white people that have like never done any of that shit. <laughs> and we, me and him walking up, like showing people how to play dominoes. And hopefully, we'll raise a ton of money for the building beds because they're going to be here too. They'll be able to get up on stage. We'll be able to talk about. Um, you know, where I'm just going to bring a bed and build it there, uh, here in the beer garden. And, um, yeah, it's, it's sort of a way for us to try to bridge the gap between the two, right? Because the beer culture, I wouldn't say that it's in, it's innately exclusionary of that. I think that it just has excluded it for so long that it feels as if it's exclusionary. And I think that until we as industry members decide that that's not okay, it's always going to be like that. And how do breweries do a better job of sort of actively promoting just that they are an inclusive, like a space where people can come into, where the community is welcome? Because you're right. You go in, you know, it is a longstanding issue in this industry that basically it's, it's to the point of almost comedic effect that it is the bearded, you know, older, you know, rich white dude, you know, who, who is the, who is the craft beer fan. That's the, and that, is you know I when I talk to groups around the country about you know these topics, you know say I think there are the right reasons to do these things, mm-hmm. but if for no other reason, just your own pocketbook, you know the business reasons for people trying to be a sure. little bit more inclusive. But how are they? How you know why or how is it that that breweries can do a better job of, of just doing this because they've just been happy to sort of rest and the spaces have been the spaces and they've never really given a lot of thought to it. Well, I think, um, again, every brewery is a little different. I don't think that, I think it's important to remain genuine in everything you do, right? I, I don't think that the reasons that you should do it should be, you know, against the grain necessarily, uh, your own personal grain that is. But I would say that there, there's an initiative, for example, I'm, I'm trying to push in 2020 for us. So even I haven't done as much of this as I need to, but um, my plan is starting next week, actually, start working on this. And I encourage other breweries to do this too, um, especially again. It depends on what kind of brewery you are. 
But if you can sell beer outside of your facility, whether you're self-distributing or sending beer through a distributor, uh, actively, this is something nobody's done. We hear this all the time when all the many African-Americans involved, maybe and they give all sorts of excuses, right? Like maybe it's, it's an economic problem. You know, they don't, they can't smell it, which I'm like, I don't believe it at all because I mean, my cousins are still lining up and that shit, me too, uh, to buy the next Jordans that are coming out. Right. And so like, as long as we put a value on that thing as African-Americans, as long as you show them that there's a value into this thing and they buy into that, they'll spend the money. Like, you know, it's, it's there. So I think that's a bullshit answer or question or excuse rather. Um, the next step is going to be getting the beer to them. Right. Look, it's 2019. I think that all of us are starting to realize that the building and they will come thing is kind of bullshit now, right? Like you're, you're very, very few and far between that have the ability to make a brewery in the middle of nowhere or a shitty area or like in a warehouse in the back of it and have your tasting room be super successful, right? These days, that's a lot more rare. You have to give a, a broader experience to the consumer. Similarly, you're not going to build it, especially if you're building it in like a nicer neighborhood, right, with a bunch of money and white people, you're not going to attract a bunch of black people to come and hang out with a bunch of white people for that. So go to them, right? I think it's important to go to your inner cities, your urban communities, and start selling beer there. Put money in the convenience stores that these people, that, that, that these other neighbors of yours are going into to buy beer. Do tastings there. Put it in the liquor stores and the corner shops and the small independent grocery markets and and do your best to get people of color who own those businesses into these things, right? So I think legwork is what you have to do. I think the majority of the black people that live here in St. Petersburg don't drink Green Bench, not because they don't come to Green Bench, it's because Green Bench isn't in their neighborhood, right? And, and is it because we're scared to scare to sell it there? Maybe, maybe. I, I just, I think that, um, and this is also not a thing that like, again, I've not done a great job of doing myself yet. Um, and this is something that me and Dominic have talked about a lot. The initiative needs to be there for that. And I would love to see more breweries actually, let's stop throwing our hands up. I'm tired of that. I just, let's do something. Let's bring it there. Let's go there. Let's bring it there. Let's go in and sell it in. Just it's about showing up, about seeing what happens too. I mean, like yep. you said, it hasn't been done. So why you know we you can't use this as an excuse. You just don't know yet. And it's got to be good for your brand. I mean, like diversifying your demographic, right? Putting it in stores that other crapperies are not selling their stuff in. Imagine those doors swinging open, right? Imagine the amount of human beings that are over there that drink just as much as the amount of human beings on this side of Central Avenue that can drink craft beer you know what i mean like it's it's not that they don't want to it's not that they're not into it it's not that they don't have money it's not any of these excuses it's because we aren't doing enough do you look at that as sort of the cigar city situation and say you know is that do you learn lessons from that do you take a look at that and say like this is not something you know maybe at some point you think maybe we continue growing a little bit and do you look at that and just say this is you know this is where that road leads and maybe this is not where i want to be so maybe we keep it tight, keep it, keep it smaller, keep it, or, or, or just we, we pivot and we do something slightly different. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think I've ever asked myself the question that way. Like, I don't think I ever thought about it as like a, um, I guess when I saw Cigar City sold, I didn't really think about me. 
Maybe that's the thing. I, I didn't think about Green Bench. I didn't. It did, had nothing to do with Green Bench, right? It didn't. It wasn't a thing that like affected me like that. It was just like I was putting myself in the shoes of Cigar City, right, and understanding that this was the reality of the time. This is the decision they made, and these are all the reasons why. And here's what's going to happen because of that, right? And just sort of swallow that pill. I never. It never really affected my vision for Green Bench. I, I don't think Green Bench and Cigar City are the same thing. I don't think we ever opened Green Bench and said like, let's be Cigar City. Let's try to do these things that they do. Let's try to do what other people are doing. As a matter of fact, as you said earlier, our conversation was how do we set ourselves apart? How do we do something different while being as genuine as we possibly can and true to ourselves, right? And 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 good to our community and good to our employees and good to you know, our families, like that's really what I cared about. And so I didn't, I didn't really think about us at all. I think I was like more, I, I you know, and it's weird because at the time that was happening, we were planning this expansion. Also like we're so far removed from being Cigar City anyway that I think it was really easy to compartmentalize the two of them. Like, you know, we, we, clo- we finished last year, 2018, we packaged 4,800 barrels of beer. We're not, we're not a big brewery, right? We've been around for six years. Well, it blows my mind. Everyone's like, oh, yeah, the OGs, you guys got it figured out and all this. I'm like, shit. It's like, dude, I'm, I didn't make 5,000 barrels last year. I'm going to make 6,000 this year. We invested heavily in a lot of stuff. We went through a $3.7 million expansion. And we put in a state-of-the-art canning line that no one in the world our size has. The quality of our cans coming out is better than anyone else's. That's our size. Um, or it's as good as anyone's on the planet. And, like, including Budweiser. And we built this facility to create an experience in which the consumer locally could continue to evolve as drinkers. Um, and it gave us the opportunity to start selling my friends' beers, too. Like, I showed you the bottle cooler and walked in. We're selling beers from all over the country and the world. We're the only place in the state that probably, uh, really, that probably has, like, Cantillon year-round and Dree year-round. And we sell them. We sell a lot of goos here, like a lot of Lambic which is fantastic, and it, it gives us opportunities to explore these conversations. I guess when I think of Green Bench, I'm thinking about that. I'm not really thinking about another brewery. I'm thinking about what can we do for our consumer rather than I'm thinking what's everyone else doing, you know? Because otherwise I wouldn't be genuine to what I want to do, right? It's not about trying to be someone else. It's about who, who is, who's in here, right? Who, 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 who are we and how do we convey that? I think that's probably what I was thinking. Where are you getting your inspiration from? Where do you continue to get inspiration from? Everything. I mean, there's so much shit out there. The world's huge, right? Like, um, a lot of people in the world. I think it's just everything, man. I think sometimes it's situations. Sometimes you're like, what, I want to drink right now? You know, like, I want to make what that is. Um, sometimes it's, I mean, a lot of times it's environment. A lot of times it's like, what do I want to drink in the Web City Cellar? What do I want to drink at Green Bench Tasting Room or in the beer garden or at my house? Or what do I want to be able to pick up at a gas station? What do I want to drink at the beach or while I'm playing golf or while I'm listening to music or, you know, like, so going on a boat. So like all those, there's all these situations and there's a great beer for every single one of them. And so oftentimes it's just trying to explore that. Um, just trying to find that taste, man. Just trying to, again, I think the inspiration is just trying to make the best beer you possibly can. And I don't think that I can make Hazy IPA better, or rather, let's put it this way, I don't, I, I think that I can make Hazy IPA better if I know how to make a dope-ass double-decocted Pilsner. You know what I mean? I think that's going to help me make a Hazy IPA better. 
if I apply the same care and attention to detail and passion to this hazy IPA as I do that lager and vice versa, then they're both going to be pretty tight. And they're going to get better every time I do them because I care about it so much. Like, I care so much. So, yeah, sometimes I'll hear people like, oh, I'm a traditional lager brewer. I make these beers, decoct this, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I'm just drawn to that, right? But a lot of them are also like, I hate hazy IPAs. I'll never make this. I'll never make this. I don't like to put myself in a box like that. You know, like, I'm, I'm in a very happy relationship at the moment, but I will say I don't have a type. <laughs> That's always been my, my, uh, my whole thing. Like, uh, types don't get in my way. I'm not mm-hmm. going to let that get in the way of what I want. So, like, same thing with beer. Recently, you made an amber ale. Yeah, yeah. What, what was yeah. that about? So that beer is called uh, Ask About Me. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, like for the last, I'd say the last year, uh, I have been, I've been thinking a lot about early brew pub culture, right? Like Americans, American pub culture, which was before my time. Like I'm, right. I'm, you know, I'm early thirties. Uh, you know, I did just, you even have the experience of going into those places where it no. was basically it was a gold, it was an amber, it was a pale, and it was a stout? I, I not when it was the only thing around. There are still breweries that are like that, right? Oh, plenty There's of, still plenty some of like old school American style pub like places, and I like fucking love going to them. Like there was one. I'm trying to remember where I was. Oh, I was in um, I was in Michigan, a uh, year and a half ago, maybe. Yeah, it was like August of last year, and it was for like B Nectar's the meter. It was like for their 10th anniversary or something. And like near my hotel, I was I was walking in like Jolly Pumpkins there, and which is they have a, a brewery there at least, our tasting room. And they're one of my favorite breweries ever. So um, I was heading there, but there was a brewery in town that I kind of took this back alley and they were there. And I walked in. They've been around since like 90, like 90, I think, actually. And yeah, I mean, the list was just fucking like golden ale and like amber ale and brown ale and just stout. And like, and I was, it was just like this locked in time menu. Now they had some other shit that was like, you know, hazy IPA, blah, blah, blah. Cause they're fucking around. They're trying to do that shit. And honestly, like I, I, I had a sample of one of them and I wasn't a huge fan of that, but I'll tell you fucking what, man, that golden ale was good. That amber ale was tasty as hell. And I was just like, where the fuck is it? Like this shit would, there's no way this is going to be successful anywhere, but like, like, it totally should be, right? Same way, like, you know, Chris has been struggling for years to make session beers, and now he's finally seeing some success, I think, because I think the market has caught up to his fucking deal. I was up at Notch in July. It was awesome. <laughs> so I made this beer ask about me because uh, I've been thinking about that style for like a, since I pretty much went there and right before that, and I was just, just like, man, I'm, I'm I'm, we're so removed as drinkers because I keep, you know, I, I do think of myself, obviously I'm a brewer, but I also think of myself as a drinker a lot of times. And so like I was, I'm so removed from drinking those that I don't, I remember what they taste like, but I don't remember what they taste like. It's been so long that it's hard to say definitively that I just like remember what Amber Ale tastes like. Now I do remember what they taste like and I judge them at GABF every once in a while. And you know, like, fuck, I judged Amber Ale this year. It was one of the things I picked. Get, I was like, I want to judge this, right? Um, because I wanted, I was, I wanted to get back to drinking them again. And they're like, hey, finally, it's they're been like, ten years. We got, somebody's we got one guy who's interested. Yeah. In this. <laughs> it was just me at the table, and uh, yeah. So I, I made this amber. I called it ask about me for a couple reasons. One of them because like I was like, no one's gonna ask about an amber, right? Number two, it's also a hip hop reference. There's a song called uh, 1993. 
that just came out uh, last year, I think it was, from a, it's on a, a new Dreamville album, which is like J. Cole's like group of young hip-hop artists. And it's called 1993, and the opening lines are, since 1993, I've been smoking weed, ask about me. And I thought that was hilarious. I thought that song is so funny. And I was like, that's also exactly what the conversation I kind of want to have with Amber L is, is like, remember when, like, None of us remember it, by the way, right? I can say, remember when Amber, blah, 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 and everyone's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, you don't remember shit. You, you don't remember shit. I don't remember shit. I wasn't there. Like, I wasn't there. Let's, let's, like, let's go back and let's explore. We're always talking about how our favorite brewery is Sierra Nevada, and they are. Uh, let's go back and try some beers that Sierra Nevada made. Let's, 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 like, let's, again, historical styles. Let's figure out why they're important. Let's figure out why they were drinkable. Let's go back to see what those elements were. Because I don't think that we should stop innovating and create things like Hazy IPA, but I do think we need to find, there is, in my opinion, a commonality between a drinkable Hellas, a drinkable Amber Ale, a drinkable IPA, a drinkable mixed culture sour beer. You know what I mean? Like, I think that there are elements in between all those things that make them somewhat timeless. And, and the timeless part is its drinkability. The beer's fucking good. The beer's good, right? Does it have to be fucking hazy to be good? Hell no. Does it have to be hazy for you to order it? Shouldn't be, because you're drinking a lot of shitty hazy IPA to a lot of people. Like, that's how I think to a lot of people. Like, I'm, you're drinking a shit, lot of shitty lager. You're drinking a lot of shitty pale ales. You're drinking a lot of shit. At least drink a good beer, right? I don't care if it's an amber ale or a hazy IPA or a sour beer or like a fucking Doppelbach, which I got one of them in the tank, too. <laughs> I got a smoked Doppelbach in the tank. I'm pretty stoked, though. <laughs> What are you excited about moving forward? Where you know? What are you? What are you? I'm always, I'm always excited. Yeah, right? I, I can. I sense so that about you, so which, is, which is which is invigorating. But like, where you know? What do you want to do that you have not done? Like, mm. What do you? What's been in the tank for a while that you're like, or in the drawer, or in that that envelope that you're just like, you know, that folder? You're just like, I'm gonna do that one day. I'm gonna sure. do that. What do you? What are you most excited about getting? And I'm sure it probably was Amber Ale. That, <laughs> I'm that, done. I'm done. <laughs> I'm retiring today. Um, cool. <laughs> Chris, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank I appreciate you, man. it. I appreciate you having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Beer Edge podcast. This show is produced by Beer Edge and co-hosted by myself and John Hall. We know it's lonely during COVID-19, so if you want to reach out, we look forward to hearing from you. I can be reached at BeerScribe on Twitter or via email at andy at beeredge.com. If you've got some time, and we know you do, drop a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. Be sure to check out our revamped Beer Edge website, where we're posting new articles every week. Also be sure to check out John Hall's other podcast, Drink Beer, Think Beer, which drops every Wednesday. We'll catch you next week with another episode of the Beer Edge Podcast. Until then, stay safe and healthy.